welcome to the Manifest Your Career podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Norma Reyes, a Latina career and life coach. With this podcast, I help successful women learn how to combine their intuition and logic so that they can manifest their dream career. By listening to my podcast, you'll learn how to go from feeling stuck and lost on what to do next to having the clarity, motivation, and strategies to manifest the career of your dreams. Each episode, I'll teach you the skills, strategies, and mindset you need, girl, to get in alignment with your career goals. Now let's go ahead and get started. Welcome back, guys. This is episode six, and I have a new guest interview for you all. Her name is Wendy Veloz, and she is an inspirational leader known for igniting change in the human services field. Wendy is currently the director of the Office of Policy and Planning at Harris County Public Health. In this role, she leads a team of policy experts overseeing the agency's strategic planning, performance-based budgeting, public health accreditation, government and legislative affairs, and health equity portfolios. That is so much. She has so much going on and she has so much wisdom to share with us. Guys, she started her career in the U.S. government as a presidential management fellow. And I'm so excited to have her here with us so that you guys can learn and grow. And she has lots of career tips for you guys too. Thank you, Wendy, for joining us. And our first question is, can you tell us about your family background? Where did you grow up and who did you live with? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. So my family background, well, I'm Mexican, but I'm also like fourth or fifth generation, depending on what side you're looking at. And so, you know, my family grew up without speaking Spanish in the home. My parents were part of that generation where speaking Spanish wasn't a thing for them to do, that they were going to be professionals. And so, you know, I very much was just in a primarily English speaking, pretty, I would say pretty low income, single parent house. And, you know, I lived with my mom and my sister, but my grandfather was also there, of course. And we had you know, the same Mexican thing that happens a lot, you know, family members move in and move out and, you know, all these unofficial cousins and uncles around. And so it's always, you know, a good time. And we had a lot of really good memories at that time. So it was, it's always something I think of fondly. Yes, I can see you smiling. I'm sure they can <laughs> hear you smiling too. So when you were young and people asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, what do you recall telling them? I never had an answer. This is the best part about it. I only just wanted a PhD. <laughs> I would just tell them, I want to be a PhD. And people would be like, that's not a career. That's not, that's not, you have to make more choices. And I would say, but that's really what I want. I just want to have somebody call me doctor, Dr. Wendy or, or Dr. Velos. <laughs> that was really my goal was just to get a PhD. And, you know, and I almost didn't care what it was because I really wanted the status more than the job. And then once I realized that a PhD primarily does research, I finally said, no, thank you to that vision. <laughs> moved on from there. That's funny. Yeah. Well, I do have my PhD and I'm definitely not doing research. I did not do it for that part. (laughs) I know. See, look at you should have been my idol back then. (laughs) Speaking of that. So who do you recall as some of your earliest career models? Those that you imagined being like when you grew up and what kind of work did they do? Um, Probably my mom, you know, because being a single mom, she worked a lot. 
And she had a really good work ethic. She used to take me to work with her when I was little. She works in insurance. And so I was kind of looking at different claims and things. She always had these big stack of papers to file. And here's my little like eight-year-old hands filing things because I could barely read. And so I'm there, you know, trying to read people's names and put them in the right file and stuff. And so she put me to work when she'd go to work on the weekends just to kind of learn, you know, what happens in an office and to see an office setting and to know, you know, what back then paperwork was, which now we all do electronically, but... (laughs) You know, then there was just reams of paper and files everywhere and whole big file rooms. And so I remember just sitting, you know, in the file room and looking at stuff that kids probably shouldn't see about insurance claims, you know, <laughs> like picture, pictures that are really graphic and things like that. But the point was that I was really able to then, you know, look at the systems that were in place and how she operated within them and how she was able to kind of show me the basic skills that happen in an office pretty early on. And so I was grateful to that. And so that was probably my, my biggest idol, I would say. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was always teachers, you know, who you kind of look at and you say, oh, I I might want to be a teacher when I grow up. I had some pretty fantastic teachers. I I grew up in Whittier, California, so we have had a pretty good education system. Um, I don't know how it is now, but back then it was pretty good. And there was a lot of teachers who invested extra time into me and who kind of said, hey, you have potential or, hey, you are someone that I want to put forward in this program or something like that. And so I always had a, a kind of soft heart for teaching just because you know, they were so nice to me. And I thought, oh, if I hadn't had that extra push from XYZ teacher or this teacher or that teacher, maybe I wouldn't be where I'm at today. That's nice. Yes. And to, to have that in your pocket later when you're facing challenges, that really helps too. Yeah, for sure. So can you tell us about your educational background? Yeah. So I was the first in my family to go to college, which meant a lot of my life, I grew up thinking it was impossible, right? Like it was always a, a mystery. How, how do you get to college? It was a very good question. You know, I'd ask people like, well, how does this work? And like other people were just assuming they were going to college and I'm like figuring out the technicalities of, of college, right? And so it was really kind of funny because once I, I started down the road of college, I was like, oh, there are technicalities. Like what is this FAFSA thing? And what are these essays I've got to write? And like, what's going on with this SAT? And so I had to kind of navigate that whole road by myself. You know, my mom would do what she could in terms of trying to support me with decisions and things like that. But for the most part, I had to learn the process and get myself there. And so I ended up going to UC Irvine. Um, I had I had a bunch of choices. I, I actually had one of these uh, two-door situations where I could have gone to UC Berkeley or I could have gone to UC Irvine. And my intuition told me to go to UC Irvine. And so I ended up there in the first year, I got a very, very special program. <laughs> it's like called the Sage Scholars. I still work with it today. It still exists. And it's for people like me who come from low-income backgrounds and come to college, a lot of first-generation or first-time education in, in higher ed. And a lot of the program was about mentorship and learning additional skills. And they give us an internship and they have a, a scholarship. So I was able to go on a UC Irvine scholarship plus that scholarship. And for the first couple of years, my school was pretty much paid for. And so then once I got to grad school choices, I said, okay, well, let me kind of think about what I want to do here because I'm coming out of an undergrad program with pretty low debt. And I had already been interning for about three or four years. So I took a gap year and kind of worked and, and stayed with my internship and took a job. And then I ended up going to Columbia for a master's in social work program. And that was a whole inspirational experience that happened when I was in my internship, sort of pivoting from psychology and cognitive sciences, where I thought I would have a PhD. (laughs) Again, getting back to that PhD (laughs) I was trying to get to. And then I kind of moved to another thing because one of my mentors said, oh, you know, you're really good at helping people. I don't think you want to be a psychiatrist. I'm pretty sure you want to be a social worker. And I was like, what's a social worker? And then I started looking into it. I'm like, "Mm, 
I don't know if I want to work with individual clients. And so I ended up just becoming a macro level social worker. And so when I went to Columbia, it was one of the only programs in the country that does policy. And so I got into the policy track and that was kind of where I've, I've sat since then in the policy world. Nice. It's so transformational too, just to see how it unfolded. So kind of to backtrack a little bit, before yeah. starting your first full-time job and you did talk about internships, what were some of your career interests? I would say art, actually. I was really, really interested in art and pursuing some sort of creative space, something that I was able to make and do and, and have people enjoy. So I think that that was another road. And so I was actually president of the art club in high school. And my art teacher was like, well, are you going to go to like to psychiatry or psychology and then you're going to make your own ink blots or like what's going on here <laughs> like how are you combining the two together because she didn't really see the connection but I've been able to kind of keep that creative side you know as kind of like my side stuff that I do just to, for fulfillment but that really was another option yeah and that's a, that's what happens we're growing up people want to just keep us focused in one box versus just being able to explore everything so that's nice how you just did that for yourself you're like I'm not going to be put in a box you know yeah yeah <laughs> So (laughs) how did your career interests change once you entered the workforce? I think I really was interested in, like I said, helping people. That's been sort of the core throughout my career is how, how do you help people? And I eventually pivoted to the question, how do you help more people? Like, how do you do that in mass? How do you, how do you scale efforts? And that's where I think I've kind of stayed at that, that in mass kind of conversation, because Mm -hmm. I believe it's helpful to help by individual and to really make a transformative difference. I just don't believe that my personality is really the one that needs to do it. Right. And so I like to empower others to do that work, but I like to kind of do the very high level thinking, strategizing pieces that are going to really impact a lot of people at once. Yeah. Sounds like you wanted to have a big, larger impact versus just the the one-on-one. So before I ask you more questions, can you kind of Tell us about your journey. You got your bachelor's degree, you did your internship, you got your master's degree. How did your career unfold after that? Well, I went to Africa a few times. I know it's such a random I know I really I have a very random career when I went to Columbia I you know I chose policy as my field but I had a concentration I could do and I really was interested in going abroad I had never gone abroad before I had never left the country not even I I think I had been to Mexico as far as Tijuana once right like I had not really left the country and I was trying to do this international track and my mentor was like I see your passion I'll let you do it however you know you need to decide where you're going to go and I said okay so I started looking into it and I told I'm going to go to a program in Belize. And she's like, why would you do that? Why would you not go further? You, you have the opportunity to go like wherever you want. So in talking to her and another professor, I chose to go to Uganda and live in a village with no power, no water for six months, doing a needs assessment for the schools with a local parish. And it was the most like transformational time in my life. You know, everything that I was ever afraid of happened. (laughs) Everything that I ever had no idea how to navigate happened. Completely different language, you know, seeing extreme poverty and seeing poverty like I had never known it before. So all of those things really kind of changed my perspective on how to help people and what is really helping me and, and who are you really helping and how are you helping them and why and do they want help? <laughs> you know, there's this kind of help question came 360 for me where I was able to see all these different facets of what I was trying to do. And so I think that that's really where I made a lot of decisions on, you know, what would be the next levels of, of what my career would look like was because I had a, a lot of time to think in Uganda with no power and no water. <laughs> 
Wow. I cannot imagine that. It sounds amazing. I did my own study abroad the end of my undergrad. It was in Guatemala. And when I tell people that I went to Guatemala, they're like, oh, are you Guatemalan? I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, You only want to go to the country that you're from. (laughs) Right. And um, but it was it was very interesting. I did not go that extreme, though. I wish I had, though. That is an opportunity that I wish I'd done. So for those of you listening, if you are able to go and do a study abroad far, far away, completely different from your culture, because Guatemala, I mean, yeah, it was not where I'm from, but it's still similar culture. So. Yeah, and I think that was what she was saying with Belize. It's like, go go as far as you possibly can so that you're going to get the most experience that you possibly can. And I definitely think it was a good push in that direction, because like I said, there was things I would have probably never learned had I made the choice to go to Belize. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. That's so nice and fortunate for you to have had that, like had that push, those people in your life to, to push you there, right? Because I know I didn't have that. And it is something that I wish I had back then. And that's, that's really the reason for the podcast, because I want people to know, you know, what questions to ask when you don't know what to ask. So with that, what would be some things that you would share with us? What are some questions to ask when feeling unsure? I think it's a lot of times you're unsure because you don't feel confident about the choices in front of you. And sometimes I literally just rely on my gut instinct and say, okay, if I don't feel confident about these choices, which one do I feel most confident about? Or which one doesn't make me feel like a pit of my stomach is going to fall out? <laughs> you know, what, is, what is that weird little thing inside that tells me that this one might be a little bit better than the other one? So sometimes I think if you have multiple choices, you kind of get paralyzed and you just don't make a decision. You know, you just kind of sit there in the decision for longer than you need to. And so I think sometimes stepping forward into what feels the best is really the advice that I would give. And that's really worked for me a number of times. And the, the whole go to UC Irvine, I go to Berkeley. And then when I go to Columbia, I go to Belize or go to Uganda, you know, really it was about what was my intuition telling me and how happy did I think I would be with the outcome of the decision I was making. And so I think that's another thing you can ask yourself, you know, in your future life, in your future you, looking back on where you are now, what kind of happiness do you envision? And what is the road to get there? And which of these choices or which of the options or which of the things that you could possibly do will get you closer to that happiness? And it might not get you there with the full, like one, one decision, obviously, <laughs> uh, but, you know, incrementally trying to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you go to Africa, you come back. What's your first full-time employment after that? Oh, <laughs> so that's another story. You'll see, I'm really good at working programs. Like I always, that's, oh, sorry, my dog is in the background. I always had an option for different types of professional development. And I, and I actually seek them out, right? It's not like something that just presents itself to me. I try to find, you know, what are the ways that are going to get me, like I said, a little bit closer to what I want. And so at the end of grad school, there was a program called the Presidential Management Fellows. It's a pretty prestigious fellowship. It's with the American government. And you come in at a, a lower level of staff and you kind of, stay there, you learn, you do some professional development things, and then you move on. And you eventually can transition into a full time staff. And so I did that program for two years. But I didn't find out about me getting into the program until I was in Uganda. (laughs) So there is a career fair here in Washington, DC, that I totally missed, because I was half a world away. And so when I got back, I didn't have any prospects in this program. I like no one had chosen me because I didn't put myself out there. So all these other people are getting placed in the State Department and Treasury and all these other places. And I'm just coming back from Africa, like completely dazed. <laughs> you know, So <laughs> I said, okay, I got to do something. And so there was a, a couple of people who reached out to me and said, hey, we have some things you might be interested in. We employ a lot of social workers here. 
and you know, we're interested in, in you coming to, to interview. And so I ended up working for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, for 13 years. I, I did the two years and I just sort of stayed there forever. So it was really funny because it, it ended up being like, a, I did other things while I was there, but that has been kind of the home base for a number of years. And then I finally was moved on eventually from there, but it was very much the first job that I had outside of grad school. And it was a job I kept for over a decade. Yeah. Amazing. And well, I'm an LPC, so I'm very familiar with (laughs) SAMHSA, SAMHSA. Yeah. I often go on there. And for those of you that don't know, I'll make sure to put it on the show notes because I don't want to take us on a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's so many tangents in my story, (laughs) but that's how life and careers unfold and really going back to the purpose of the podcast that, you know, there's so many roads that can lead you to your purpose and your purpose changes with you. And over time, it's not like an end road. I'm sure you're not thinking, oh, I've made it. You're probably thinking about the next move that you want to do the next exploration that you want to have. So with that, can you tell us a little bit about maybe your networking or mentoring experiences that you've had? Yeah, like I said, I've always been part of these programs. And so the programs always had given you some sort of networking opportunities. So first of all, Sage Scholars, they taught us how to network. They were like, listen, you guys are going to practice on each other until you kind of figure out how to introduce yourself, where you place your name tag, how you do a firm handshake, but not too firm. I mean, we went through like the whole thing and the step-by-step. And I think when you're new in your career, you're in college it's really important to have that practice and you can get it by going to mixers. I mean, you don't have to be a part of a formal program, but I think it's important for you to understand the best way to present yourself and to enter a room to be a memorable person. And if you're really trying to step out into the the crowd and come out with people remembering you after these little tiny, tiny skills and tips really make a big difference. I mean, sometimes just repeating the person's name several times throughout the, the conversation. So you remember it, not even so they know, you know, their name, but just so you remember it is really, really important. And so I think if you can do all of those pieces and learn networking, you'll be more successful at actually doing networking. So, you know, I, like I said, the Sage Scholars provide us like, I think the, the baby steps into networking. And then once I was in the presidential management fellows and I got from New York to DC, between the two, between Columbia and DC, they're really, really network heavy cities. And you know, your, your existence in DC very much depends on who do you know and how well do you know them and how much do they actually like you? And so there's a lot of times where you would present yourself in a room and you would have to really make sure like, okay, am I working this network opportunity the way I want to? And I've definitely left things that I didn't like I didn't like the opportunity or I didn't think I was in it that day. And I said, okay, nope, I'm giving myself permission to step away and not do this. But I joined the young government leaders, actually, was a, a, I was a board member and I ended up being the person who put on the networking events for them. So I kind of went from a networker to the one who creates the networking opportunities. And so it's, it's been nice to have like all those different facets from barely learning networking to figuring out like, what do I need to put into a space so that people can facilitate that conversation in a way that's going to be productive for people. Amazing. So do you have any tips for the audience? Like I said, I think the basics of just being present and how you present yourself is number one, you have to really come into the space, always obviously dress your best and kind of look presentable. I know sometimes you go from like work to networking things. So taking that break in between and like refreshing yourself, or even, you know, like if you have a coat on, you know, changing your outfit just a little bit, I think sometimes that physical change in your appearance also can change your behavior and can change how you're going to present yourself in the room. So that would be another tip I would say is like, if you're going straight from work to a networking event, 
take a little bit of time to refresh yourself and not just your makeup. I mean, really, really refresh your spirit and come into the networking event as you want to be presenting yourself. And I think when you're talking to people, that give and take is really important. But sometimes you get engaged and people don't stop talking. <laughs> you're just, you're like, okay, so I thought I was going to have my turn and I didn't. And now I'm just standing here listening to your life story. And I think that's really sometimes awkward for people to navigate. And so I would say sometimes I just will say, oh, excuse me, you know, what? I'm going to go get another beverage or I'm, I just saw somebody that I, that I need to talk to. Let's connect later. Here's my card. And I will just pivot <laughs> and walk the other way. And so, you know, I think that you have to find what your, what your strategy is to get out of those conversations, because they think that sometimes they can pass their productivity and you will then have spent your whole networking event, just talking to one person, which you, that's another tip, you know, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you need to kind of <laughs> networking is you're creating a network, not just a friendship with one person. And so you want to make sure that you're trying to get to as many people as you think will be productive for you, but also to not deplete your energy. And so I recently had gone to a creator's forum where there was opportunity to network with thousands and thousands of people and everybody did. So every day you went home drained, just completely dead because you had saw 50 people in the hallway you met, you had 500 cards in your bag and you're going, what am I doing tomorrow? I'm doing this all over again. Oh no. And so with that, you know, every time I went home, I had to do a serious like pause, refresh myself, take a bath, you know, cook a meal and just process the day so that I could come back to the networking event and still be present the next day. And then when I got rid of all those cards, I actually took them and bundled them with a rubber band. And so these are the people that are my priority. These are the people I met, I know I connected with, and I need to follow up with them. These people were interesting to me, but they weren't necessarily my priority, but I don't want to lose them. So I'm going to put them here. And then these people I just met, but I don't know that I jived with them or for whatever reason, they're not in my priority or my maybe list. So I'm just going to put them over here. And so I had literally hundreds of cards batched this way. And then when I went through them, I took the first batch that were my priority. And that same day or week or whatever it was at the end of it, I ended up just emailing and sitting down for about two hours saying, at least I reached out to that person. If that person doesn't respond, a person forgot me, or if the opportunity is missed to connect, that's fine. But I did my homework coming out of the networking event with as much as I possibly could to make those connections for later. And then I just kind of went down all the way through those first two batches. And as far as that has gone, it's really had done probably about 20 connections that were genuine after that. And so it was worth the effort to catalog those people after. And I think that's a good tip too. I mean, you don't have to put them into batches the way I did, but just to go back through them and remember who you need to follow up with and then doing it right then. Yeah, that is good. And that way you don't feel obligated with those people in that batch that you just didn't jive with. Because sometimes we feel that way. Yeah. Right? We spent that time, they spent that time with us. And I loved your tip on how to get out of a situation that's no longer productive. <laughs> because that happens. And that person might just be needing someone to talk to. And unfortunately, you're the one that's there. And it's hard. I know for myself to just you know, walk out of a conversation. (laughs) So to say like, Oh, oh, I got it, you know, and it's respectful, you know, you're not making it about the person that's continuing to talk. So thank you for that one. And if there's a third person, let me give you another way to do it. (laughs) This one might help you too. If there's like a third person in the conversation, and that person starts getting engaged, you can just say, Oh, you know what, I've got to excuse myself from the conversation, have a great conversation. Great to meet you both. And just turn and walk away. Don't even like, you don't even have to give the business card because that second 
person who entered the conversation with you, that person will then take that energy on and you're able to kind of escape from it. So I think there's a couple of different ways you can do it respectfully, but just make sure you, you kind of interject that you are leaving. Like, I think that's a good part of it. Mm, thank you. That's a really good tip. So now what has been your most influential experience in your career thus far? Yeah. So when I was at SAMHSA, they had a bunch of White House projects that came up pretty rapidly. I would say, well, I went to CDC in Tanzania for a bit. I came back and and my leadership knew that I was someone who kind of likes to travel and likes to do things. And so a presidential opportunity came up to be on a program called Strong City, Strong Communities. And it was a pilot from the White House under the Obama administration. And they said, okay, well, we need somebody to go down to New Orleans and to be our mental health expert for the city. They don't have a behavioral health portfolio in the health department, and we want somebody to basically be our attache on the ground, along with a whole bunch of other federal staff. And so there was a Department of Justice person and a Department of Housing person, and there was me, and then there was the person from CDC. And so there was kind of like all these people who worked together as a, a multidisciplinary federal team to give the city a little bit of easier access to the federal government so that they could cut some of the red tape and have expertise that they normally wouldn't have on the ground. And so we jumped in and were there for about, I think eight, I was there for eight months. And we just did a whole bunch of development projects with the mayor. I was working under Mayor Landrum. And so I you know, had such a great experience with that. I came back to SAMHSA and they were like, okay, you did a really good job with that, thanks. And then they kind of reframed their thinking about me and I became like the special projects girl. <laughs> I was the per- and I always call myself this. I am very much the special projects girl. If you need a paratrooper to come and fix something, like just tell me to come do it, I'll go do it. And so after Sandy Hook, which was such a tragedy, my expertise is actually in, in mental health um, promotion for young people and violence prevention. And so I had already been pivoting my career towards the violence prevention piece. And they said, well, you know, Sandy Hook is one of the biggest, most violent acts we've seen in our country in a very long time. And we really need somebody who understands this to lead this White House initiative on mental health. And we're calling it the National Dialogue on Mental Health. And I said, okay, well, what is this National Dialogue? Like, how are we going to make people talk about this? And what are the details? What do you need me to do? And, you know, I had like 50 other questions. And there really was no answer because they were like, well, we kind of think the White House wants to do this and this. And they gave me like this laundry list. And I said, well, just go get it done. So I created this flash work group. I made this term up. Flash work group is like, (laughs) I've seen it since, but I had never heard it before. So I'm coining it. And it was basically me just grabbing a bunch of my colleagues and say, hey, I don't have enough people to do this. And we're not going to be able to hire contractors. I need your expertise. And I handpicked who I needed. I went to their bosses and said, I need these people to come under me and work under my guidance. And I was actually able to convince everybody to give me staff, which is like, unheard of for a staffer to be like, no, I need my colleagues. And so we created this little team. We had a whole website that was made mentalhealth.gov. I'm actually the, the ghost author of mentalhealth.gov. And we created a toolkit. And so the toolkit was to facilitate community conversations on mental health. And so we had an infographic and all these toolkits and things that we did. And so as a primary author and developer of all those materials of my little team and some contractors that we were able to secure. And then those same contractors were actually working on these deliberative democracy conversations that were based on the toolkit. And so they had over 200 conversations around the country and that became the dialogue. And it was supposed to be actually normalizing mental health. So people have more of an understanding of what are the basics of mental health and how do you engage with somebody who may have a mental health challenge or a mental health problem. And then also if somebody comes to you, how do you get them to help if they're seeking help? And so it's kind of the basic, basic conversations and awareness. So I did that for about about almost two years, a year and a half, two years. And then I went back to my regular portfolio. And so this whole package under the Obama administration came together with this big partnership that they 
had all these commitments from different national partners, all these people. So I ended up having to be the SAMHSA contact for all of these different national partnerships and national organizations. And so I'm very much well known in that space for that work. And so it became really transformational for my career because there's people now that are at the head of organizations who will call me and say, oh yeah, hey, Wendy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey, Jed Foundation on suicide prevention, the head of it. Yeah, I'm still going to work with you because I, I love working with you. And so that work was really transformational because it really put me on the national scene as someone who can get things done. And not only for the government, but also for the other organizations who want to raise awareness around the same issue we're all passionate about. And so I think that that work was really good. I mean, I got to meet the Sandy Hook parents that came to meet Secretary Sebelius. And so I got a voicemail from Secretary Sebelius thanking me for my work. So it was really transformational in that aspect, too, because it was not only something I worked hard at, but it was rewarding. Yeah, and so much impact and so important. Looking back, were there any missed opportunities that you had during your career? Yeah, there was. I I think when I was early in the Presidential Management Fellowship, there was a time when USAID, the United States Agency in Development, they asked me to come and work on their education portfolio for education in in Africa. Obviously, I had just come back from Africa, so it made a pretty big impact in what they were thinking I could come and work with them. And it was a second, what we call rotation, which is when you leave one federal agency and you go and spend time learning and growing in another federal agency. It's fairly common in terms of the Presidential Management Fellowship because they actually require one, but it's uncommon to have two opportunities. And I had just come back from Department of Labor working on child labor issues for six months. And so my boss said, oh, well, I'll go ask and see. And and my previous boss who had said, oh, yes, you could do two, he had actually left the agency. And so now it was kind of up to the person who was above him. And she went and said, you know, oh, my boss said that, you know, I uh, can't let you go. And I know now that that wasn't true, that that man didn't know that I even had that opportunity and that that had never been presented to him. And it very much was her just not wanting me to go on a second six month opportunity. And I consider it probably one of the biggest missed opportunities in my career because it wasn't my choice to have missed it. And I didn't have any other way to get it back. And I've never been able to get back into that space in the way that I really wanted to early in my career. Have I made the best out of my career where it went? Yeah, of course. And, and would I be here saying all these things about the National Dialogue of Mental Health? Possibly not. But I, you know, I may be talking to you about doing something you know, that I also was passionate about. And so I feel like, at least for me, you know, I consider it a missed opportunity. But I also think that when I missed the opportunity, I turned it around and was able to then make what I wanted out of what I had. And that's how I ended up moving into the education space and the education and mental health space. Yeah, definitely. That's what we have to do. When a missed opportunity occurs, how can we make it better? What can we learn and move forward? You know, instead of feeling stuck and frustrated that a door was closed on us. So thank you for sharing with that. So what are some new ideas or creative ways that you create new opportunities for yourself? I mean, you seem like you are very, very exploratory with so many things, which is awesome. But how would you say that you do that even more so for yourself to open more doors? You know, there's always the opportunity for you to make known what your biggest talents are. And I often am not shy about telling people I'm really good at this or demonstrating to them how I'm good at it. And I think that that tends to present other opportunities that I didn't know about. And so sometimes for me, it's not like looking for the opportunity so much as it is putting myself out there and waiting for an opportunity that really fits me. And I think when I've been able to do that, that's when I then kick into the intuition and say, okay, is this the right thing for me or not? This is what's being presented to me, but I don't have to take everything that's presented to me. 
And so I very much can decide, you know, do I want this or do I want that? And so that, that's one way that I do it. But then I also do sometimes seek new partnerships. I seek new things. I go to the farmer's market and I talk to all of the people who work there and say, hey, you're a small business owner. What are you doing? What do you, you know, what's going on? Can I, can I write about you in my blog or can I take some pictures of you and wander around with my DSLR camera? And really what that's taught me is people love to talk about themselves and they love to talk to you about themselves. And sometimes you can actually create some space to work with that person as a partner if just by having that initial conversation when you went and said hey I want to hear about what you do I want to hear your experience you know everybody from the lady who makes coffee to the person who sells soaps or the guy who sells spices and to the lady who sells olive oils all of them actually know me really well and they actually email me now that I'm <laughs> in Texas and no longer in Maryland because we had that personal relationship and we've had a lot of different opportunities to work with each other in an entrepreneurial spirit. And so I think that that's another good way to do that is just to be out there and say, hey, I'm interested in you. I may not actually have the same thing in common that you do, but I'm interested in learning about your process and what makes you passionate about what you do. And that has really opened up a lot of doors for other projects and other side projects that I hadn't anticipated before. Yeah, I probably didn't even know existed until you opened that door of asking the simple yeah. question of tell me more about you. I love yeah. that. Both of those are two things everyone should do more, more highlighting ourselves and more just learning about another person just to learn without anything, yeah. you know, without it like a hidden agenda. Expectation. For yeah, I don't expect go. anything from it, right? <laughs> that sounds a lot I expect better. To have a, yeah, I expect to have a good conversation and that's it. <laughs> Yes. Sometimes those conversations are the best. Yeah. I love learning all about people and their careers and everything and not just their careers, but what makes them them. I think careers are something people think it's just one small window, nine to five, Monday through Friday, but really a career is yourself and what you're putting into. And then that's another reason why burnout happens because people want to isolate this nine to five, Monday through Friday thing, and then go live their life. But that's not really how it works. Both have to be really integrated in order for you to be able to actually live your life, which I'm sure, I mean, everything you've said, you've never thought, oh my gosh, this is not my life. You spend so much of your time working into your life. And I think, you know, kind of sending it around to wellness. I talk a lot about wellness and, and the work that I do outside of work. And, and even in my other work, I said, all my works, I talk about wellness <laughs> and it's really part of your occupational wellness. So I try to explain it to people as your occupational wellness is important because it's not only part of your life, but it itself is alive, right? Like your career is, is alive and it's something that will continue to develop as long as you are planning to make it develop. So before retirement or if before you decide to just you know stop doing something and go live on the island, that's really something you have to manage actively and you have to be looking at it and critically saying, is this where I want to be? Is it going where I want it to go? And as I kind of move in the direction that I'm moving, am I making the impact that I want to make? And I think when you ask yourself those kinds of questions, you're then able to navigate into the next steps of your journey in a way that you could be more confident about because you've actually sat and actively thought about it. You're, you're actively managing where you're going. And so I think some people, like you said, you know, you're getting this, this rat race because you're just like, okay, let me, let me wake up and do this and do this and this. And I can do that too. I wake up, go to the gym, you know, go, go work and then maybe come and walk the dog and you kind of just go day by day by day. But then I think when you take a step back and you realize, okay, wait a second, is this fulfilling to me? Am I fulfilling my purpose? You know, we were talking about this earlier. What is, what is my purpose? And do I feel like I'm fulfilling it? And I think as you get closer to that question, you may think, oh, this rat race is not for me and I need to do something else. 
And some people stay in that space and don't do anything about it. You know, they just kind of like, okay, I don't, I want to do something else, but I don't know how to, or I don't know what opportunity to find, or I'm just going to go look on LinkedIn and, and apply to a bunch of things because I'm, I'm nervous about what I'm doing now, or I might need a change or whatever. But I think really what it should be about is you taking that pause and saying, okay, this isn't working for me. My occupational wellness is suffering because of whatever it is. And how can I make my occupational wellness better for me and for my career that is alive, right? So I think that's really a place for people to do a little bit of self-growth. Thank you. Thank you. That was more than I could ask for. You said it so well. And I hadn't heard of the term occupational wellness before. So I probably will be using that later. I will share resources with you so you can <laughs> yes. use it all you want. Yes, share, share, please. share. <laughs> so I will have, I have two more questions for you. One of them is what other career advice do you want to give to us? I do a lot of coaching for younger women, really primarily, but I have had a few men and I don't charge for it because I think that we all need to be giving back to the younger generations. And I particularly focus on people of color, although I've mentored a number of different people. And I think, you know, just doing something as simple as being willing to read somebody's resume who's in your field and say, hey, if I were recruiting or if I were hiring for this, I would want to see X, Y, Z. I also think that it's helpful for people to quantify their experience. So when I talk about the National Dialogue on Mental Health that I spoke about earlier, I don't say I created a toolkit. I say the toolkit I created has reached over 300,000 people. I'm very specific about the reach and the impact that the work that I've done has made. And luckily, I have the statistics on the back end to be able to find that. But some people get, they think it's difficult on how to quantify. And so sometimes it's the number of years of experience that you have, or sometimes it's the the reach or the impact. And then other times, it's really just the experience that you took away from the thing. And so how do you then explain that and use that experience to get you to your next step of your field? And so often when I'm working with younger people in their in their work experiences, you're kind of limited, and they have maybe an internship under their belt, or they have a fellowship under their belt. We really dig into like, well, what did you do? <laughs> you know, what, what did you feel good about? What did you come away from and say, ah, this was, this was a teachable moment and I learned this. And how would you characterize that and quantify it? And sometimes we'll just really rewrite that experience. So it actually sounds like five experiences. They may say, oh, I just did this and this and this, but then they say, oh, but it had this and this and other thing. And whoa, 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 that's 10 skills you just talked to me yeah. about. So I also kind of break things down in terms of skill sets and I, and I hire people based on skill sets. I don't necessarily always hire people based on number of years of experience. I look at one intuition. Do I, do I think that these people are people that would fit well with my team? And so I often am looking for a certain skill set in the resume review part of it, which I think is why having your resume and having it characterize your skill sets really strongly is important. But then once it gets to the interview phase, I don't do the first interviews. I actually have my team do the first interviews because I'm more interested in a person's personality and if their personality fits with my team. So if my team vets you and says they like you, then I'm willing to listen to you, right? Because at this point in my career, I have the luxury of having people under me who will do that and who are very, very good at what they do. And so I respect their opinion. And I would never want to put somebody on the team that I like, but that they don't like, because that will disturb the whole team dynamic. It would just change. And I don't want that. I love my team. And so I think that that's the important part too, is once you get hiring your career to being a manager, finding the way to make the best team is the most important thing you can do. And then relying on your team to tell you how your team is functioning, right? And so you have to be willing to listen and to change and to do different things. And I always tell people like, you need to do professional development. You will not work for me forever. 
I love you. I think you're great, but you're <laughs> going to move on from here and I'm going to help you. So what training do we need to book for you? Where are you trying to go? Are you trying to go back to grad school? If you are, are you taking the time to apply? Are you looking at campuses? Can I help you redo your application? So I'm kind of more than a boss, <laughs> like a boss coach. <laughs> it's really weird. But I try to like infuse all those things into my team as well that I that are actually hired under me. The same as I would somebody coming out of grad school and saying, hey, I need some experience. What, how can I characterize this and get a job? And so I think to me, it's really just having that well-rounded perspective of how can you give back to those who are not yet at your level? Yeah. Thank you so much. I love those questions. I'll make sure to highlight them in the show notes, like the most amazing boss coach ever. That should be the news term, a boss coach. <laughs> I might, yeah, I might have to take that away from this conversation too. Like the occupational wellness, those would be our, our little takeaway gem. Yes. So I would love for you to share anything that you would like to share with us in regards to, I know you have a business revolving around wellness. If you want to share anything on that and we'll end on that note. Yeah, absolutely. So on wellnessgrind.com, I'm trying to create a space for people to come and share wellness inspiration and share their journey. I tell people, you all have a different wellness recipe. My wellness recipe and your wellness recipe will not be the same and they don't need to be. You have the freedom to choose what works best for you just as I do. But the problem is a lot of people get stuck and only thinking wellness is physical or mental. And they don't think about the other pieces, your social wellness, for example, your financial wellness, community wellness, you know, you're not in a vacuum, environmental wellness. And then we talked about occupational and there's also intellectual wellness. And so all of those facets are really what round out a person's perspectives and their, their opinions, but also they round out your experiences. And so as you kind of come into this wellness space and you're only working on part of it, then you're going to maybe feel like there's other parts that are not quite fitting in the way you want them to, or they don't join with your vision of where you're trying to go. And sometimes it's really because people need to work on those things that they're actually the weakest at. And so if you are feeling like your occupational wellness is one of those pieces, then that's where you would put your work. I personally came into this and had started with the physical wellness and then actually found that my financial wellness was in the worst place that I wanted it to be. But it wasn't because I wasn't I wasn't doing something right. It was because I wasn't actively managing it. And so I think that that's part of the wellness perspective that people can learn from is how do you actively manage all the parts of your wellness? And so that's what I'm hoping to bring to people in another format besides just wellnessguard.com. But I think it's always an opportunity for me to do that when I'm on with you and people like you who are willing to listen to it. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. And I look forward to learning more about, is it the website? Is that a website right now? And then you're going to have products later. Yeah. I was like trying to piece it. I'm just like so excited to learn about all these different. (laughs) I love that you said that everyone's wellness is their own unique thing because I competed in a bikini competition and everyone thinks that it's just working out and not eating when it's really not that at all. (laughs) It's that you actually need to be eating, but everyone just has this one view of that's what makes you healthy or something. And there's only one way. And I, and through that, I learned so much about myself and what actually makes me healthy. And I realized that what makes me healthy, which I found I can actually eat a lot of carbs and I need to eat, do low fat. And 
and it actually is really good for my heart. I don't know how much you're familiar with like HDL, but I was pushed on like cardio increases your good cholesterol. What actually does that for me is lifting weights, but I wouldn't have known that had I not tried something different, but that just goes to, you know, it's general advice and it may work or it may not work for you. And you just get to actually look and see, is it really good for me or not? So, but that's a whole other conversation. You took the time to measure it though. You took the space to look at it and then you've been able to figure out what was it that has really made the difference. And like I said, I think that's the pause that people need to take before they take another step in their journey. And and I very much had to do that too. And so I think if anything, people can go away from this conversation thinking, what is my time that I need to pause? When do I absolutely need it? And how can I then pivot in that moment to where I want to be? And that's, I think, the biggest part that I've learned throughout the whole journey. Yes, especially the actively engaging. Are you actively engaging in it? Because if not, it's just like on auto drive or the back burner. And, (laughs) you know, what happens with things in the back burner, they just go up in flames sometimes if you're not watching. (laughs) (laughs) Or they just smolder and they don't get done. (laughs) Either way, it's bad. That looks good. I'm looking forward. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Manifest Your Career podcast with me, your host, Dr. Norma Reyes, a Latina career and life coach.